Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 12 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent James Jim Gaylord joins me today. Jim spent nearly 32 years with the FBI, including six years as the Supervisory Special Agent of a counterintelligence squad in Orange County, California. Two of the most famous cases that he ran as case agent were the successful espionage prosecutions of Chi Mac and then Greg Chung, who were both U.S. citizens operating at the behest of the People's Republic of China government and its intelligence services. I've heard a lot about both of these cases over the years, and I'm very excited to learn about them firsthand from the special agent who actually led them. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Sure. Pleasure. For starters, can you kind of tell us what it was that drew you to service with the FBI in the first place and how you ended up working on these enormous espionage cases? Yeah, well, I'd always wanted to uh, do something that I thought would advance society. And as a, even as a little kid, I wanted to be a police officer. When I was a junior in high school, my government class had a great teacher, Mr. Minnick, and he uh, brought in an FBI agent to speak to us. Yeah. Not too big to admit that I was impressed by the suit <laughs> the guy was wearing, and he was very professional, and he just seemed like top-notch, like that's what law enforcement, uh, the top of it should be. So I decided as a junior, I wanted to be an FBI agent, and from then on, I, that's, I worked towards that. My college, my law school, everything was, was tailored to help me, give me the best chance of getting into the FBI. Oh, wow, that's great. So you just set a goal, and you just went for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm told I'm a little, little unusual in that way. But it worked out, fortunately. Uh, there were a lot of things that could have gone wrong. I think you might want to talk about the whole process of becoming an agent. I can mention those, but if it worked out. Yeah, please do. I'm sure a lot of people are interested in that as well. The FBI, first of all, requires a four-year uh, college degree. And you've got to be at least 23 years old. And I wanted to get in, in on the younger end. Most agents tend to be about 30 when they get in because the FBI likes to have people who've, got, who've already had a career and got a lot of life experience to bring with them. I wanted to get in early. That's all I wanted to do. So I got a job while I was in law school as an investigator for a personal injury, injury attorney. And then I put in for the FBI as soon as, I, as soon as my age would allow it. But one of the, one of my, it's very hard to get in FBI, extremely hard. Got about five programs to get in. You can go in as a forensic scientist or as an accountant or having a law degree or having a, a language ability other than English. And then there's a general category. And most people come into that. Half of the academy, every new academy class is composed of those people, yet that's the hardest one to get in through because it's just an enormous number of people, school teachers, stockbrokers, all sorts of people coming through that program. I wanted to improve my chances, so I decided to go to law school. I, I did it simply to get in through the law program because, as I knew, most people, and as I found out when I went to law school, most of the people there Want, want a pretty fat paycheck when they come out and they're not interested in doing government work. So I knew I would have a narrower number of people that I would be competing against for the, for one of the five, roughly five law school 
uh, applicants uh, going into each group of 40. Basically, there's a group of 40 people for each new academy. I got the call. I was selected. I, I had two weeks notice, went back to Quantico. I had uh, had been told uh, certain physical requirements I need to meet as far as running and push-ups and pull-ups. So I've been practicing all that. Went to Quantico. There are five, this quick funny story, five other agents came from Los Angeles at that time. And we all did horribly. The very first day we arrived, which was July 29th, Quantico, Virginia, we all did horribly in our physicals. And as far as our running times and everything else, and they pulled all five of us in and accused us of, of misreporting our, our numbers to get in. And what they didn't take into account back then is how humid Virginia is. And we West Coasters aren't used to that. It was like running with a wet blanket, <laughs> hot wet blanket on you. And we, we all told them the same thing. They, they gave us another chance. And, you know, through the weeks and months that we were there, it's four months total, we surpassed our numbers. But that's something they had to learn. West Coasters aren't used to that humidity back there. So I finished my four months there, Quantico. They teach you uh, every week it's a different topic. Say they'll do organized crime, and one week they'll do uh, the mafia. The next week they'll work on biker gangs. They'll do that with white collar, do that with terrorism, counterintelligence, bank robberies, all that. And you go through scenarios. You're actually, they've put together a whole, for instance, kidnapping scenario. They've got actors doing it. They've got what we call Hoover Town nearby, where it's a complete a false town, kind of like what Hollywood would set up, but 3D and bank tellers, the whole bit. And then you go through and you work the case. Uh, you learn how to do their paperwork, how to conduct interviews. And we'll even set up a couple of ambushes on you just to make you humble when you think you've you got everything straight. So you, you work, you work every sort of, you learn about every sort of violation. The Bureau works hundreds of violations because they don't know when you go to your office what squad, what violation you're going to be working. So you're you're kind of getting a little a little background in everything. And so on about the tenth week, they they have a big ceremony where you read off the letter telling you where you you're going to go. Because usually you don't know exactly where you're going to go. With me, they announced I was going to go to Minneapolis. Uh, there was a lot of laughter in there in the room because they thought the Southern California kid would hate that. But but I'd actually gone to college in Minneapolis, so it was a great selection for me. I went to Minneapolis. I worked initially as the new guy. They put me in the white collar crime squad. I learned how to how to try to get a confession out of people, did a little trial work. They had a shift. They needed more manpower and organized crime. And for the rest of my year and a half there, I worked organized crime. Really enjoyed it. I knew I, I wanted to do that over white collar crime. So, so far at this point, I got in to, do, to work criminal issues. But one of the issues back then was everybody, uh, you had to go to a, a small to medium-sized office, your first office, every new agent did, and then you would go to one of the top 12 offices. Back then, they weren't paying any sort of cost of living differential, and, they, and so people were leaving New York in droves, and they needed all the new agents to go to New York. It was a huge sucking sound from, from New York City. But nobody wanted to go there because it was, it was so tough. You had people living in the suburbs of Philadelphia going into New York. And so I saw an opportunity. They advertised an opening for Vietnamese speakers. And I, being from Southern California, I know most of the Vietnamese are in Orange County. I put in for that. Fortunately, I'd had a good aptitude test for languages at the academy. I got accepted. I went to Monterey for, it ended supposed to be for a year. I ended up staying there two and a half years so I could I get wow. to the uh, expert level of Vietnamese. 
Then I went to Orange County and that squad working with the Vietnamese was a counterintelligence squad. So that it was, I kind of fell into counterintelligence. I'd always kind of been interested in it, especially, especially facing off against the Russians. I ended up facing off against the Vietnamese who were also, uh, they put heavy pressure on the Vietnamese communities in, in the United States for monies and for loyalty. And I really enjoyed it. And that's, that's how I ended up working counterintelligence in Santa Ana. And, and thoroughly enjoyed it. The Vietnamese were great people. Kind of remind me the Cubans are the most anti-communist people in the United States you can find. And they were great to work with. Oh, I can imagine. I've heard a lot of story of the, the communities that have developed, especially on the West Coast. They're coming from Southeast Asia after Vietnam War ended. I've heard some very positive things about them for sure. Yes. So what was it that eventually led you from CI into this Chi Mac case? I was, along with a partner of mine, Colleen McKay, we worked Vietnamese matters for Many years, we were two of the four bureau experts on Vietnamese matters and loved, as I said, loved the work. However, they were higher level management decision. They were phasing out working Vietnam as, as hard as they had been. Calling McKay uh, retired, and I was kind of the expert. I was actually looking forward to it. But then one day, my supervisor, Sal Valdez, walks in the office and says, headquarters has called us. They got a huge Chinese case. And I want you to work it. By that time, I was one of the more senior agents on the squad. But there was a more senior agent working China. And I said, hey, Sal, give it to him. And he said, well, the agents, the other agents on the squad don't really like him. They're not going to work for him. And this is going to be a big case. And you're going to have to, you're going to have to kind of lead other agents. Still wasn't crazy about it. But Sal and I uh, had to fly back to D.C. The information was so sensitive that we had to be polygraphed first. When I came in the bureau and when Sal came in, they weren't doing polygraphs. So we had to had to take the polygraph, had to pass it first, and then they briefed us on the information. And although I obviously, for obvious reasons, can't go into the details of it, our United States intelligence community had come across some information indicating there was a leak of military secrets coming out of the West Coast, specifically in Anaheim. There was a, comp- a division of L3 Communications called Power Paragon, and somebody was sending information to the Chinese about our Navy secrets. And there wasn't a whole lot of, there were, nobody was named. And there were, we knew some technologies that were being compromised. So that did help narrow down a little bit. But that's about what we were given back, back there. And when we came back here, I worked at an RA, resident agency, which is a satellite office in Los Angeles. It's one of the bigger ones in the Bureau, but still our, our squad only had five to seven agents on it. And there's, just no way to cover this big a case. So we actually still try to tell them, you know what, maybe you need to give this to Los Angeles. They got more resources. But Los Angeles had just had a case, the Katrina Leung J.J. Smith case, which was basically a senior agent of Los Angeles had an asset regarding Chinese intelligence who actually was working him. She was, she was an agent for China and he was buying into it. So there's an espionage case that broke out on that and it ended very badly. Not because she wasn't guilty, not because he wasn't guilty. They were guilty of sin. But with our system and had an extremely left-wing judge, made all sorts of excuses, the case failed. And so headquarters decided they didn't want to give this case to LA. They wanted us to handle it. So we, it fell in our lap. Fortunately, which is not most my experience for most of my career, headquarters was extremely supportive. Oftentimes, for whatever reason, they end up being kind of the the barrier to some things, but we had some great desk officers back there that sent us what we needed, got us more resources, personnel, equipment, uh, all that. And so we, we got started on the case. 
when we started the case, we actually found, well, first we, first we had to figure out who it was, right? So we, uh, we actually looked at all the license plates in there. We had to do some, a lot of covert searches of data to figure out who would work on those technologies. And we narrowed it down to a small, very small, like five, five people that could have been the source. And then we found that one of them, as we were looking into it, was in China at the time we'd opened the investigation. It was Chimac. It was Chimac. And all the other people we were looking at ended up not having access uh, when we thought they did. Or, in other words, every, all the other candidates dropped out. It was Chimac and his wife, Rebecca, who were in China at the time. And they came back and we started looking at Chimac. Not because he was Chinese. It's because he had access. Hmm. He traveled to China and he was in China at the time. And he had the best access. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You're really just dialing in on the obvious indicators there. Right. So uh, we also had information that he was using someone else as a courier. So we were looking for that to identify that person as well. In about a month's time, we were able to identify that person, that likely person, as his brother, Timac. His brother, Timac, as we found out later, was a PLA propaganda officer, especially during the uh, Cultural Revolution. He was a Communist Party member. He was traveling. He had been sent recently to the United States by the Chinese government to act as Chimac's courier, as we found out later again. But we started looking at him and we started doing what we call trash covers on Chimac's workplace, Chimac's house, and Timac's house. And right away we got something. At first we didn't know it was evidence. And this this is for all those investigators out there. You keep everything. You never know when something's going to end up being important. At the time we recovered from the trash, all it looked like was an invoice from Timac to some guy back in Hong Kong named... Lay Po Fat, and it looked like he was installing audio video equipment for him. That's all it looked like. He was charging $17,000 for what he'd done. After the case, or about three quarters of the way through the whole case, we found out that Timac had no such company and that this guy was actually the handler in China. And this was basically Timac billing the handler $17,000 for having encrypted DDX worship information onto a disk and then sending it back to China for them to examine. So that was great evidence later. But at the time, we just thought, oh, this this audio-video guy's got a side business. Wow. Wow. I've never heard of an espionage invoice before, I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was all coded. It's called Pooh's Good, Good Fortune Company. It was a Mac professional stereo engineering company. So it all looked legitimate. And that's why you keep everything. You don't you don't discount anything. You keep going back and revisiting sure. stuff. Obviously, stop me if you got a, got a question, but I'll, I'll go into basically from that and some of the other indicators we'd found about Chimax access, we put in for a FISA warrant so we could listen to his phone calls, first of all. So doing that required a covert entry because obviously you don't want them to know. And you can do a, a phone tap, obviously, from outside the house. But we also, they had a, if I had time, I'd tell you all these stories about how we were misled by their strange behavior because they were so unbelievably cheap about stuff that they would do weird stuff that nobody else would do. And we thought it was spy related. Then we'd figure out, oh, no, that's, they're just extremely frugal. So they never updated their house. And so we actually needed to get into their house to update their systems so that we could, we could listen to their phone calls. So in June of that year, which was 2004, we were able to do a covert entry while they were in Alaska. They went on an Alaska trip. We sent a couple agents to watch them. We actually had to get the Canadian government involved, helping us with with the switch off from when they landed in Vancouver to when they got on the ship going to Alaska. 
And so we knew where they were, and we, we did some covert entries, which is a story in itself. Very interesting. I never had to do a covert entry before. It was fascinating how we did it. I went in with our technical agents and took a look, and what we found was great confirmation what was going on. Now, it wasn't confirmation that he'd t- given something to the Chinese yet, but it com- confirmed his access. It was all the technologies we were told were being leaked were in his house, stacked in, in two to three foot tall piles around his house. Stuff that he was stuff that he was working on, like uh, quiet electric drive. He was a leader in that, which is a it's a technology to, to further quiet uh, our submarines. Oh wow! But uh, not just that stuff that he wasn't working on. Stuff that he like the DDX. He never worked on that, but he got access to technical specs that were sent out by the government to different defense contractors. And he he was collecting all that stuff, so that gave us a big boost with headquarters and with Los Angeles that we were on the right track. We had the right guy. So these are like technical manuals that he's stealing from work. He's just got dozens or hundreds of them around the house. Yes, hundreds of them around the house. Some of these are export controlled. They're not allowed to be in his house. He didn't have them in a safe or anything. Some are stamped no foreign, which is no foreign dissemination. And some of them are classified, but they're not stamped classified because he's rewritten the information and obviously not stamped them. Hmm. Then, of course, we also went through the address books, had some Got some great contact information people was in contact with in China. Now, Chimac was a guy who had presented to everybody that he was Hong Kong Chinese, never been to China, born and raised in Hong Kong. And, and as we, we showed in the case, that was all a, a false story that the, that the Chinese government had set up. They arranged for him to get out of China when basically nobody else was during the Cultural Revolution. He went to Hong Kong because his older sister, who had already tricked her way into the United States, sponsored him to the United States. But when he went to Hong Kong, she and the government gave him taskings there in Hong Kong to keep track of our U.S. military ships during the Vietnam War. Between 68 and 72, we actually had proof. He, he kept he kept a log of their comings and goings. People might think that's no big deal now because of the internet, but back then, the movement of military ships was still very, very sensitive area. You know, when we would be off the coast of North Vietnam and such, wow. and of course, they were allied with the North Vietnamese. So he had been working for the PRC government for many years before he ever came to the United States in the first place, right? That's right. He was recruited in his 60s. And, and, and he was recruited in the 60s right out of college when he, where he was an engineer. So was his wife, as a matter of fact. They were both recruited there. She was also an engineer. And they okay. were sent, they were sent to, to Hong Kong. And then they were tasked and they used his older sister, who was in on it, to get to the United States, and then he sought a job with a defense contractor. So he was following his tasking. Do you think that they directed him like towards Power Paragon or towards the DDX program, or was it more like go where you can and find something valuable for us? A little of both. It was go where you can and find something valuable for us, but they were stressing Navy. They wanted Navy information. They, okay. They've been striving for decades to catch up the U.S. Navy, and they've they haven't caught up completely, in my opinion, but but even back then in 2004, the Navy experts were saying the biggest threat to China, to the United States, the Navy is the Chinese Navy, because they've been striving to develop catch-up technologies. They had one one paper they were following called the Assassin's Mace, where they're looking for spe- specific technologies to oppose us, for instance, the ballistic missile to take down a, a U.S. aircraft carrier. And 
and submarines. Hmm. They want they wanted to be able to detect our submarines to drive them away. And all this was basically geared towards an eventual invasion of Taiwan and how they could make it too difficult for us to oppose that. Right. So I guess I'm, I'm not like a strategist really, but I would say that the U.S. Navy is the biggest impediment to them actually taking over Taiwan and has been for decades. Is that right? Much more so than the Taiwanese military itself? Yes. Yeah. Now, it will be tough for them. They're, they don't have the kind of uh, amphibious abilities we do. But yeah, Taiwan would Taiwan would be tough for them. But if, if it weren't for the U.S. umbrella protection, they would have, they would have invaded Taiwan decades ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's they want to remove that. They want to make sure we know. They they want to get to the point where they can. And this is not my opinion. This is what our experts were telling us during the case. They want to get to the point where they can do a, a quick invasion of Taiwan, and then make it too hard for us to respond with with sophisticated mines with cheap diesels that they can sit on the bottom of, of the the eastern seabed of Taiwan because they know we're not going to bring our our billion dollar aircraft carriers in too close. And so they want they want to push us further and further off so that by the time we can respond, it's kind of a done deal and we'd be facing too many losses and make the calculation to, you know, sue for some sort of uh, negotiated hmm. peace. Wow. Okay. And Chi Mac is playing a big, big role, even if it's totally unknown. He's playing a huge role in giving them this eventual advantage that might just totally change things in the Pacific one day. Yes. He's playing... He's playing a huge role, playing a huge role. And that's that's one of the things I kept stressing. When, because we'd had cases like Wenho Lee, and then I mentioned the Katrina Leon case, that had been failures, even though these people were guilty. Because our court system, you know, you've got to prove they're guilty. And it's, it's very tough to bring in classified information or asset information as evidence. That's one of the things that makes convicting spies so difficult, because we're not going to reveal our sources, uh, get them killed or, you know, cut off our future information. So it's very, very difficult to, to convict these people. So well, I think I lost my train of thought there. But basically, uh, because we're not going to do that, they've got an easier uh, target here in the United States because we're so open in our research and sharing our information. Right. It's it's unimaginable to me, just, just as an example, that a, a native-born American could go over and join a program similar to the DDX program, but in China. Like that just, that's almost unthinkable, I would imagine. No, yeah. There's, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. And if they do join it, then they're going to be watched and they're never going to be out of the sight of, of the services. Right. But no, but that's not going to happen. Certainly have many foreign born engineers, technicians, scientists working in programs across the United States these days. Right. And a lot of them contribute a lot. What the problem is, is people, I think, are too sensitive to challenging certain things. With the Chi Mac case, the Greg Chun case, and others that I've looked at, people are afraid to mention, you know, ask about their travel to China. And a couple of other cases that we went public on, it's their travel to China was their excessive travel and their excessive pride in being in the achievements of the Chinese government when they're U.S. citizens should lead to certain suspicions. Like, wait a second, you know, um, you're a little bit too married to a country that considers a, considers itself an, an opponent, an enemy to this country. Hmm. So he was making kind of pro-Chinese statements to his coworkers and they didn't necessarily connect the dots at that point? Well, no, he he didn't. He was very professional about this. Okay. But Greg Chung, Greg Chung did, and other cases I've done did. But Chi Mac, as I mentioned, was the one who said, no, I'm from Hong Kong. I, I've never been to yeah, yeah. 
mainland China. It's because he was he was recruited early. He he was and his wife and his brother Ty were all officers in the People's Liberation Army. They were professionals, and he was. We were very fortunate to catch him. It's only because we got great information from the rest of the USIC intelligence community in the U.S. That's the only reason we we were able to get on to him. So. So as I mentioned, we did covert entry and we did it again and we put in microphones in the house. Eventually we even put in cameras in the house, put microphones in his car, put cameras and microphones and tapped a phone at work. So we had complete coverage. One of the things you have to worry about in a case like this is if while you're investigating, you don't want them to be giving more information to the hostile power. I'd feel horrible, right? If I were looking at him for five years and he's been spying all that time. But we, we felt like we had complete coverage. Sure, sure. We were watching his computer, his email accounts, everything. And so we felt pretty good that he wasn't at least passing things that way. And when he went to Alaska, we watched him to make sure he wasn't meeting anybody when we did that first covert entry. We later did our other covert entries, that, as I mentioned. We kept building our case. There are some people in our management that like wanted, wanted immediate results, wanted us to you know, show them a document, stamp secret, that sort of thing. So... With all the resources we were using, we were bringing the surveillance teams from around the country. We had static uh, surveillance teams watching cameras, like pole camera that we'd mounted, watching his house, UPS tracking on his car. We had, we had a huge number of people. And the reason I bring this up is because we started getting a lot of pushback about, okay, you know, where's the proof? It's It's been nine months. Where's the proof? And this is where I give a ton of credit to the agents on my squad that were very dedicated doing a lot of drudgery work, doing, you know, going through stinky trash every week, month after month after month. And most of it was, there was nothing in it. They had even weird trash. I mean, they didn't have normal trash, like soda cans and bottles. It would just be Chinese newspapers with wrapping up orange peels and banana peels and apple cores and stuff like that. They, as I said, they're extremely cheap. So it wasn't, it wasn't fun duty, but they did it anyway. Mm. And then basically a year after we started our investigation, we, had, we got a huge find. Again, in the trash. Again, it would have been easy for people to just kick the bag, not see anything stamped secret and throw it away. But they went through it and they found tiny pieces of paper, you know, basically, you know, 11 by 8 by 11 sheet torn up into tiny pieces of paper with Chinese writing in one case and printing in another on it. They found all the pieces they could. We put it together like a, an actual puzzle. And we came up with two very important lists. One was a handwritten list in China, not in China, not in Chi's handwriting. We could tell the paper was from China. And it listed nine, th- nine things, nine technologies, like water jet propulsion, submarine airless propulsion, electro- electromagnetic motors. The last one was DDX program. So that was that was a great find. And then the other one, the one was printed, and Chi, we knew his computer couldn't print. Chinese, only English. So again, it was paper from China. This one, I'm going to read. I'm going to read it. I pulled it up here because this is exactly what Chimac did. He didn't like going. For instance, he didn't like going to conferences much. After he got this list, he started going to every conference he could. And here's what here's what the list or here's what the instructions said. Quote: You can learn more through through joining more associations and participating in some seminars with special subject matters. Information from one special conference can be compiled onto a disk, and later on it will be very valuable to do research on it. And then it lists the technologies we want are space-based interceptors, launched EM, which is electromagnetic, launched electromagnetic interceptors, 
aircraft carrier systems, electromagnetic aircraft launch systems, electromagnetic gun, electromagnetic shield, torpedoes, etc. And that is exactly what CHIMAC did when we arrested him. He had compiled information from various conferences, some of it secret. He put it on a disc. He had his brother, Timac, and his and Timac's son, Chi's nephew, Billy, encrypt it and take the three discs that Chimac had given them and encrypt it and compressed it, put it all in one disc, and then Ty and his wife, Fook, Chimac's sister-in-law, tried to take it to China. And we arrested them at that time. They did exactly what they were told to do. Wow. So he, he received a shopping list of classified technologies to try to find, to steal from America. And after he gets that, he just tears it up by hand and puts it in his trash can and puts the trash can outside of his house. Is that right? Yes. And yes, that's right. Now, remember, he'd been doing this for like 30 years, never been caught. So people say, well, that was really sloppy of him. And it was, but it's also understandable. When we interviewed him the second time, he admitted he was angry. That list, had, he told us, had come from Pupe Leong, his handler in China. And he had he said, Pupe Leong is this computer geek who doesn't know anything about the Navy, the U.S. Navy or the needs of the Chinese Navy. And how dare he tell him what to collect? He knew what to collect. So he, he said he was angry at this list and just oh, tore wow. it up and threw it away in anger. That was his mistake. Now, we were already investigating him. I think we still would have found out this guy out. But that that is what solidified us with our management that, hey, this is for real, and this guy's been tasked, and things he's tasked to collect, he's already got in his house. That's where, after that, we had no more questions about about that. But it still took 10 months before the arrest. I mean, we watched, we watched that, got more and more coverages on him. Finally, we were able to, because it's so intrusive, the hardest thing to get is to get, you know, get a camera in somebody's house. And so we, a month before he was arrested, we went into his house and we installed cameras over, over the table, uh, a small dining room table they had, and in a computer room. So we were watching, and one Sunday, one Sunday afternoon, all of a sudden we see Chimax sit down at this table with his laptop, and he's copying discs, and his wife is helping him, and but we can't tell what they're speaking softly, and it's hard to understand. Can't tell what they're doing, but obviously something is up. So we were. Even with our three fantastic translators, we were way behind in getting our translation, probably two weeks. So we had a meeting the following Monday and said, and I said, okay, we start today. You start translating what happens today first, and then you work backwards and forwards, Tuesday and Sunday, you know, Wednesday and Saturday. And they did a great job of it. And what we ended up getting was when we worked our way backward, the week before, Fook, the sister-in-law, had called Ty, her husband, and said, I've made the arrangements. We're going to China. The very next day, Ty calls a guy they, they had called Uncle Pooh. And at this point, we didn't know who Pooh Pei Leong was. A lot of what I'm telling you, we, we put all together after the end of, you know, after the arrest and everything. And Ty calls this Pooh and uses coded language to tell him that I'm coming with something to China. Pooh says, great. The next day, Fook, the wife, again calls her husband, Ty, and they complain over the phone about, and they don't say specifically what they're talking about, but now we do. We know what they're talking about. And they say, why are Chi and Rebecca always so nervous about this? You know, last time we carried all those heavy papers for him. And Kai, who we know is a, also an intelligence officer, Kai criticized Chi for not taking, for taking some 
pages, but not other pages from a book. And we, we were able to figure out what that book was. And it had classified articles in it. And they said, you know, if, you know, if they get too nervous, they shouldn't be doing this anymore. They said, oh, but you know what? Let's not worry about it. We don't have to carry heavy papers now. Who, the intelligence officer, gave us that IBM notebook that we can do encryption on now. And again, I'm filling in the blanks for the, the listener, but but they weren't using, they weren't saying intelligence officer or whatever. They were just saying, so now we all have to do is do a disk and that'll be easy to carry. Then the next day, Ty calls Chi and he says, hey, brother, I'm going to China. And right away, Chi says, is everything okay? Is there a typhoon or something? Now, that's not something you ask somebody. Why are you going to Europe? Is there a hurricane there? You know, you don't ask that question. The reason he was asking is because he had previously received a coded word sheet, which we recovered, which said basically use weather to say if there's a storm, that if there's bad weather, that means there's there's trouble. You guys are in trouble. You need to be careful what you do. So he asked that, and Ty said, no, everything's good. So Chi says, okay, I've got something for you. To, let's meet on Sunday. I've got something for you to uh, take to China. That's when we saw the video of Chi copying his disc. And after he copied his disc, he and Rebecca went and had lunch with Ty, Fook, and their kids. Chi passed the disc wrapped up in a bag to Ty. So then Ty takes it, and the next, and, oh, while they're while they're making this disc, they're talking about it'll go to Pooh. He won't understand anything because he's a computer geek, but we'll we'll explain everything to to him next time we go. And they actually mentioned some of the things that are on the disc, like QED and carrier information. This is their conversation to each other in their house. So obviously they they think no one's going to hear them. Then on Monday. Billy is told, Billy the son of Ty is told to get some CDRs because Ty has some work for him to do. Chi calls, asking if everything's ready, and it's not. Next day, Tuesday, Billy calls his father and says, I need the diskette for you. And diskette is one of those, you know, the little diskettes we used to use. He needs that, and it shows he's done this before, and he did a couple years earlier, to code the information for his father. He's told where to find it. He goes and finds it. He gets to work. That Friday... I just told you about Tuesday, the, the next fr- Friday, two days later, three days later, Billy's driving his parents to the airport. Billy's going to be on a midnight flight to China. And they're talking about how n- nervous she and Rebecca always are about this thing. And they discuss the disk is encrypted. And right after that, you know, within within about an hour, we arrested everybody. And we arrested Billy. We arrested the parents as they were trying to get on the air, airplane. And we arrested she and Rebecca at their house. It was a long time. It felt like a long time coming, but, and we, we got video of all that. Uh, we had agents stationed there to take video. And the fun thing about this video that we didn't anticipate is that we found another agent of China. There was an agent of China shadowing them, a guy named Luo, that we also photographed. We noticed this, this shady character hanging around. And when he saw them get arrested, he made calls to China to tell him about it. We, we were able to detain him, but the U.S. attorney wouldn't let us arrest him. And he was going to be on the same flight as Ty and, and Fook. He was there to watch them to make sure they, you know, they weren't arrested or they weren't compromised or maybe that, that they weren't working with us against China. So we got a, a little bonus there. We got to look at the video later. So, Jim, you said that there was this additional Chinese agent there. Was he watching because they were aware that there was a chance of an arrest happening at the airport? Or was it because they thought that... They might have second thoughts about boarding the plane, or or what exactly? Well, now he's he didn't he didn't admit to any of this, of course. So our supposition is that he was there to watch to see if they were they had any trouble boarding. 
or if they'd been compromised the past. Either uh, we had surveillance teams, uh, our team spotted him, he didn't spot ours. So if he'd seen that, he could report, you know, back to China that, hey, the operation's been compromised. Or if he saw us meet with them and escort them around or, you know, do them any favors, they, you know, we could have recruited these people in the United States for all they knew. So it was just a general security measure. Uh, he had actually gotten in the United States through a marriage fraud business that Fook ties Fook Lee, Ty's wife, had started. She was earning up to $30,000 a month, bringing in rich Chinese who had money to pay poor Americans who would agree to marry them so they could stay in the United States. So she had a criminal uh, business on the side, and and they had used that to bring in this uh, Mr. Luo, the uh, surveillance officer for the People's Liberation Army. Oh, wow. So some American unknowingly married a Chinese intelligence agent to allow him to come into the United States? Yes. Wow. Yeah, he he actually had a wife. Uh, we know he has a wife in China. And the other person was divorced, the American, and married him. But they had, you know, didn't live together. There was nothing after that. They, she would charge for, you know, once they passed their immigration testing and stuff, she'd charge in total, she'd get paid about $30,000 per person. So, so he ended up going back, but mm. but we were able to show he had all sorts of connections to Pooh, the intelligence officer, and Pooh's cover institute. Pooh was working at the Center for Asian Pacific Studies as a supposed you know uh, area studies guy, but it was just a cover f- uh, for the PLA and the two PLA, I should say, and MSS to collect information from scholars and others. So we we were able to build lots of connections, proving this guy was an agent for China as well. So, so continuing, so now we've arrested everybody. And what, what your viewers might not realize but need to know is doing a covert entry and search like we had done probably a dozen times previously on three different periods of, of about a week where they were out of their house. Obviously, you don't want to get caught doing it by neighbors or others, but you can't leave behind any evidence you've been there. You don't want them to know you've been there. So the, the searches are very limited by comparison you can't tear a house apart basically like you can in a criminal search. So we did discover a lot of stuff, but when we did the criminal search, you know, once we arrested them, we found all sorts of fantastic evidence against these people. Letters, uh, letters that Chi Mac had acted as courier for, for instance, for Greg Chung, who one of the big pieces of evidence we used against him was, was Chi Mac acted as a courier for Greg Chung. We found photographs of Chi and Rebecca with, intelligence officers in China or intelligence officers who visited Greg Chung because uh, Chi and Greg Chung were associates. So and one of the things that made it really hard when we were doing covert search is they were horrible housekeepers. Even though Rebecca stayed home all day, the place was filthy, just covered in layers of dust. And so you couldn't move anything without leaving a trail and then they'd come back and see that something had been moved. So you'd be really careful I mentioned those three stack, three foot high stacks of papers. You'd have to carefully take them off, photograph the order they were in, put them back, not touch anything on top that had dust. So it made it especially hard to search their place. So we, the, so the, the criminal search was frosting on the cake. We found so many more things that we didn't know about once we did that. We, including, you know, receipts showing that he was in China. See, they would tell everyone they're Hong Kong Chinese. They would go to Hong Kong and then Chinese government would let them go into China without getting their passport stamped. So there's no evidence they'd ever been to China, no formal evidence. 
Well, when we recovered laundry receipts and hotel receipts and train tickets and everything in China, we could put together when they were in China, their trips. He would go up and down the coast <clears throat> giving presentations at their defense companies, at uh, their academies or colleges, universities. We were able to prove all that from all the stuff we gathered in the criminal case. Hmm. Okay. It's a good thing that they kept everything in that case, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, some of it apparently it was like a souvenir. He kept he kept his reports for when he was talking about U.S. troop movements, uh, ship movements in Hong Kong, and then when he was courier, he made photocopies of stuff he he carried for uh, Greg Chung. And again, people say that was reckless, but everything was in his house, and you're not getting in his house unless there's some outside evidence. He's he's uh, working for China, and again, thanks to our USIC partners, we got that first indication that allowed us to get started. Right. So you had this literal and metaphorical mountain of evidence at this point with all the thousands of documents you'd found. So was the prosecution pretty straightforward at that point or were there any additional complications or difficulties? There were. There were. And people would find it hard to believe, as I did at the time, that this case was, let's just say people in the Bureau and people in the Department of Justice were still gun shy about bringing charges that would backfire on about somebody who's spying for China. Because of the Katrina Leung case, because of Wen Ho Lee and others that had failed, a very popular defense was U.S. government's racist. They picked on this guy because he's Chinese, and that's all there is to it. Chinese Americans are not enemies of the state. And we found, as we were trying to interview people, some of them came out with that assumption. We were interviewing other engineers. We were going through the telephone personal telephone book of Mac and talking to engineers. And right away they'd say, they you know, like throw a tape recorder. Oh, well, you're doing this because I'm Chinese. No, we're not doing it because you're Chinese. You don't have to talk to us. But here's here's what we found out about this guy. So you need to know. He's not the guy he presented himself to be. Usually we could get people to talk to us. But that was the defense that an awful lot of management of both my organizations were afraid of. And we were constantly battling. I can't emphasize enough. This was an uphill battle from the very beginning. Despite the evidence we found, they were always nervous about being accused, especially the attorneys. Not, not the, the main attorney in our case, Greg Staples, was fantastic. But his management and the co-counsel and others were afraid of their own shadows when it came to this case. They were constantly trying to downgrade the charges. And I, I and my supervisor, who Sal was a hero too, because both our names were, were mud in Los Angeles, because we wouldn't give in. We'd said, no, we've got to charge them this. This is the appropriate charge. And it was constant, even with all this mountain of evidence. And so, as I said, Greg Staples, the AUSA, he was great. He was willing to go forward. It's only his management we had to worry about. And that was, that was actually quite a bit. But so the defense team started off with, you know, that charge. We're racist. And they threw a bunch of subject matter experts at us. We had about 13 or 14 subject matter experts, which is a large number unusual number for a government case, to talk about, we bring people from the Navy, we bring people from uh, DIA, we bring people, uh, others, to talk about the threat of China. The Navy was great. My own headquarters wouldn't provide us an expert. They were talking about, oh, well, you know, we can't, we know secret stuff, we know classified information, we can't go on the stand. Gunnar Newquist, who was my NCIS partner in this, great guy, driving up from San Diego every day to work that case for uh, nearly three years. He and I knew a lot more about this case that was relevant, that was classified, that we couldn't talk about. And we were up on stand for days. So, I, you know, it's going to sound harsh, but they were just cowards back there. 
nobody wanted to touch this case. They were afraid it was going to backfire. And so the Navy people were good. Gunnar and I did our, our stuff. And we hired a lot of people. We had a lot of pushback from the CIA at, at some points because they, they weren't part of this case. But they kept inserting themselves and saying, oh, you can't use this expert witness. He's He's been to the farm or he's he's had training or we've hired him as a consultant. And we'd say he's not going to testify about what he talked to, what he worked for you guys on. But they'd keep and the guy would the person would say, yeah, no, I'll do the case. And then they would contact him and say, you want another contract with us? You're not going to be on this case. That was a that was a lot of that was really frustrating because we were running out of time to find our experts. We did. We got some great experts. We got a retired Rudy Guerin, retired a section chief from the FBI. We got him. He wasn't afraid of what the FBI manager was telling him. He did a fantastic oh, wow. job putting all the pieces together. So we fought. Our experts fought their experts. Our linguists, their linguists. Our people were just so much better. They did a great job. And let me tell you one thing. This whole Chinese racism stuff. I'm just sick and tired of hearing about that in society and, and in our case, the FBI. And so I told Greg Staples one time as we were preparing, I said, you know, I, we can't sit through a month and a half of listening about how we're racist and not do anything. Because that's usually what the government does. Kind of put their head down, hunch over, just hope that it doesn't stick. I said, we got to go on the offensive. And Greg, one of the reasons I like him so much, he was really open to that. So when I was on the stand, I was on the stand for about four days. Three of them, because defense wanted me up there, and one for the government to present the evidence. In redirect of me, Greg said, so so Agent Gaylord, it's been said you we're racist against the Chinese. Is that true? No, it's not true. Can you give us evidence? I said, well, we got we got 10 agents on our squad right now. And three of them are Chinese. One's a Chinese speaker. The other two are Korean and, and Vietnamese Americans. Okay. Any other evidence? I said, well, there's there's three other agents on the squad who are married to Asian Americans. So no, I don't think we're, we're racist. And then Greg said, well, how about you? I said, well, my wife is Chinese American and, and she's foreign born. And now she's a U.S. citizen. And Judge Cormac Carney was a great judge in this case. He said later, way after the case is over, he said you could hear the air go out of the room. The defense had, had promised that they were going to show how racist we were. Their whole argument just collapsed. But I, I'm going to be racist against Chinese with a Chinese-American wife. And it just killed their case. <laughs> now we, they still struggled on. We went six, six weeks of trial. But in the end, we charged them with five things. Again, we could have charged them with more, but DOJ was nervous about using the espionage charge. Economic espionage had, at that point, had never been charged, even though the statute had been in existence for over uh, 10 years previous to that. Convicted them on all, all counts. It wasn't even close. And then uh, Chimac got sentenced to 25, 24 plus years. Time Act, uh, everyone, everyone else, they cut a deal again because they were nervous. They were really happy. Chimac was first because the judge said too much evidence against him and it'll impute to the other four. So we, we convicted him. When it was time for the other four to be uh, tried, DOJ just completely chickened out and started uh, saying, you know, we'll settle. We'll settle. We, we got the big win. We got the basically the drug dealer. We don't want to go after. We don't care about the mules so much. And they they almost nearly collapsed as far as the others. But we did get sentences for the others. And all the others had served their sentences, had been deported. Chimac is still in jail here in Oxnard, California. Hmm. Wow. So that that's a big win. The first time that economic espionage has been charged and you got in a conviction. And well, is that right? Well, no, no. They wouldn't charge economic espionage. And we had it. Ah. 
uh, they were again because they were so nervous. So so we went with the agent of foreign government and export control violations and lying to us because I don't have. I wish I had time to tell you all the investigation that happened and the interrogations. But he just lied so obviously. So we got him five different charges, but non-economic espionage, which we absolutely had him dead to rights on again because they were nervous about it. But what we did get out of him was a promise. It was they thought it was one. We couldn't cash at the time, but they said, look, you know, we just want to get him on these charges now and get a win. So tell you what, you bring us another case as solid as this, and then we'll charge economic espionage. And so we, we held him to it. And that's why we were able to later charge Greg Chung with six counts of economic espionage. And we convicted him of all those. I see. I see. Okay. So this investigation, it leads on to Greg Chung. As you mentioned earlier, he was an associate. Was he a friend of Chimax or just a, a fellow intelligence collector in the in the area? A, a little of both. He was a he wasn't you wouldn't call him the closest of friends, but they were associates, and they and the, their wives would meet like twice a year for dinner. Greg Chung was recruited at a Chinese American dinner in Los Angeles in the seventies by Chimac, an intelligence officer named Gu Wei Hao over in China, and. Gu Wei Hao wrote the letter that Chimak kept copy of that he delivered to Greg Chung. And in that letter, uh, because it was being carried by Chimak, Chimak, a trusted courier, uh, Gu Wei Hao was very specific about he, I mean, this was, this was wonderful. This was beautiful, both for the conviction of Chimak and Greg Chung. He laid out that Chimak is your contact. Here's some cover stories when you need to come back to China. We'll use your wife's occupation as an art artist and a, a professor at a local community college to invite her, and then you can come along. Here are all the reasons you can give for coming to China. When you come, we'll pay you. We'll put you up in a safe house. We'll bring engineers by to, for you to talk to, and we'll arrange for all the all your university visits to talk about talk about the technical issues that you're an expert on. So it was a beautiful letter. No codes. It was just outright spying language. The Chimac wasn't supposed to make a copy of this. He's supposed to deliver it to Greg Chung, and then. And that was that. But he, he kept a copy. I don't know why. It proved great for us. And if if you have time or you're interested, I can go a little bit into the Greg Chung case. But that's how they were connected. Chimac recruited him. Okay, I see. There were some some real similarities just when I look at it from a little further out. It seems like with the him putting stuff in the trash as well and keeping a lot of stuff at home. Is that right? Yeah, similarities and differences. Differences are during the criminal, after Chimac's arrest, we interviewed, as I said, a lot of associates, and one of them was was Greg Chung. And we hadn't we hadn't we we had we had van load of documents. We hadn't come across that letter yet. So he was interviewed early on, and he said some suspicious things about a guy named Gu Wei Hao and stuff, but nothing indicating he's working for China. Then we ended up finding more letters. Chimac actually had three or four letters from Gu Wei Hao to Greg Chung, and. By that time, we knew, okay, well, Greg Chung has been interviewed. He knows he's being looked at. There's no way all the technical coverages we had are going to work here because he knows we're, he knows we're looking at him. So believe it or not, with all this evidence, we couldn't prove that he'd done it recently. There's a statute of limitations to how long ago he, he had been. The letters we got were indicated activity in the 60s. So we weren't going to be able to charge him with anything, even though we knew all this stuff about Greg Chung. So we, at this point, we knew we were going to have to start another full, full-blown espionage case. I was busy with Chimac, didn't want to take my eye off the ball and 
you know, be too busy, have too many responsibilities. So we tagged a younger agent. He'd only been in the Bureau a few years, but he had great support on CHIMAC named Kevin Moberly. And said, Kevin, you're going to be the case agent. For now on, I'll be the co-case. Any questions or leads on with what we find in CHIMAC, I'll, I'll give to you. But you run with it. And he was enthusiastic, loved the space program, which is what Ch- uh, Greg Chung was working on. Greg Chung worked for Boeing. And so he took it and ran with it and did a fantastic job. So basically, one of the only things he had left they could do was trash covers. So we did it. We did trash covers. And what we found, and again, I mentioned we've got Chinese-speaking, Chinese-Americans on our squad. We're going through the trash, and he's got stacks and stacks and stacks of Chinese newspapers. And Bill, who was the agent who's going through it, looks through it, and he starts looking at Chinese newspapers and inserted inside the pages is test data documents from Boeing that he's trying to get rid of covertly. And he's putting them in the recycle bin inside of Chinese newspapers. And inside that, we find all this test data and other stuff that he's not supposed to have. He's he's no longer working for Boeing. They fired him because we told, told them what he was up to. But he's getting rid of it. And every week, he's getting rid of a bunch of stuff. We have, in three weeks, we have over a 1,000 pages that he's been... Uh, He's been disposing of test data. So that's that's the fresh probable cause that we needed to get a search warrant. And without that, we wouldn't have gotten in his house. And he had a huge house that he built himself. It was really a monstrosity. And, you know, it was leaking and stuff, but he and his wife had designed it. He had a lot of money. And we went through it. It took all day. It was a hot summer day. And in his house... And he had big crawl spaces under his house because it was built on a hill in Orange, California. We found over 60 boxes of Boeing and Raytheon and other defense contractor materials that he'd stolen. And he'd made copies of this stuff. We found we found slides, uh, present, uh, slides that he'd made for presentations in China, you know, translating everything into Chinese. Exchanges of letters between him and officials in China about what they wanted him to bring next time he came over. Awards from them, actual you know, medals and, and ribbons and awards from them for all the good that he'd done them. Just loads of propaganda he had all throughout his house. In invitations to very special dinners in China, in, uh, in the National Hall for National Day. He even kept journals of his activities. And these journals talked about his trip to China and where he presented when and where. Even mentioned he was going to local consulate officials in Los Angeles and in San Francisco and the embassy and meeting with them. And one time he actually had some B-1 bomber manuals that he'd gotten and he took them up, presented a letter, which he made a copy to keep for his own records, to them, to an official up in the Chinese consulate in San Francisco to put into a diplomatic, it's not a pouch, it'd be a diplomatic crate of, of B-1 manuals to send to China. And then they confirmed that they received that information. So we had a treasure trove of information from him and even some admissions when we were searching and I would ask him about items. So it all, it just goes to show you just never know. It all turned on him putting trash that we could show he shouldn't have had. And he was trying to covertly get rid of to get us in that house. And after that, I mean, we had more evidence against him than we had against Chimac and Chimac recovered for, for two years with every conceivable coverage. And we didn't have as much as we had against Greg Chung because of what he kept in his huge house, hidden under his house. It's incredible. 
So was the prosecution more straightforward this time around with the Chung case? It was. Chimac was six weeks. Uh, Greg Chung was two weeks. But strangely enough, he, I thought he'd, they were, they let him out on bail too, which we wouldn't let him get on Chimac. And if I were, if I were Greg Chung, I would have gone to Mexico and gone back to China. Because he was a grandfather. He had two sons here with grandkids. There was no way he was going to beat this charge I, for life. Of, and I, I couldn't understand why the judge uh, or why the court would would let him go out on his own recognizance. I was very worried. But he, he showed up. He maintained his innocence. He got a, a former assistant United States attorney as his defense attorney. And this guy had a reputation of draining his, his clients of money and then settling at the last minute. We did the same thing with Greg Chung, who had a lot of money saved and invested. But at the end, uh, he was trying to convince Greg Chung to plead. Because, you know, he'd, got, he'd squeezed about all he could out of him. And Greg Chung said, no, I want to go to trial. And I was surprised. We were all surprised. I was the first witness. And I presented all the wit- evidence we had from the Chimac case. And, of course, later Kevin went up to testify about all the stuff they found in Greg Chung's house. So, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. They had a few. They only had one expert. They didn't throw nearly as much at us as Chi's defense team did, but it was the same result. We had, we had a lot of good witnesses, good subject matter witnesses, experts, and and it was a done deal. And strangely enough, they asked not for jury trial, but for a judge trial, for a bench trial, which means makes the judge the trier of fact. And it was the same judge as the Chi Mac case. So Cormac Carney and his opinion was very strongly worded about. What a betrayal of the company in the country hmm. Greg Chung had engineered. So it was, I, whereas we didn't know what Chi Mac, even though we had a ton of evidence, you never know with the jury. It just, there was no way that Greg Chung was, was going to be found innocent with all the evidence we had. They even made some crazy arguments like, yeah, well, yeah, he was a spy in the 70s and maybe the 80s, but he hasn't done it since. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. That probably fell on deaf ears in the court, I'm imagining. Yeah. It's, well, it's, Especially when you got the judge, the judge who knows the Chimac case. It just, it didn't make any sense. But it oh, was, wow. the technologies of Greg Chung compromise were very important. The shuttle phased array, some of his, what he gave them actually convinced the Chinese government not to go with the shuttle because we were going to move away from the shuttle as older technology and less reliable. And they saved billions of dollars in research by going with what they knew we were going to go with, going back to capsules, for instance. Uh, the B-1 bomber information I mentioned, the Delta IV rocket hmm. information, he didn't work on that. Like Chief Mac, though, he, he found a way to get the information about our launching procedures that would help them. Obviously, they that was one of the keys in this case because we were able to charge economic espionage, but only after numerous trips to D.C., arguments with the attorneys. You promised, you promised we brought you the same case. We're going to have the same judge. We're going to have the same jury pool in Orange County. The same agents. There's no reason you can't charge economic espionage. They finally did. But it, it's unbelievable, like pulling fingernails to, to get them to do their job. But once we got it charged, rolled over them, all, all six all six charges of guilty for economic espionage, along with being agent of a foreign government and other items. But these are technologies like with Mac where it allowed allowed them to compete with the United States, either militarily or commercially. China is a launch, is a launch competitor with Boeing and other U.S.-based technologies. He gave away information on our FX fighter, on DARPA's X-34, which is also called a space plane. 
And he was very proud of China. One of the things we found in his house was reams of clippings about the, the accomplishments, the technical accomplishments of China. He was very proud. His sons even testified. One of them, the defense brought in, one as a character witness, we brought in the other son who said, yeah, you know, my dad, he was always over the top regarding China. And that son was very ashamed of what his father had done, to his credit. Hmm. That's funny that he's so proud of the technical accomplishments of China, but they have to come here and steal everything that is being developed here in the United States yeah. and then make a copy of it. Yeah, no, no, I know I'm not lost on the irony either of that of the that pride, so to speak. But again, he was very he was just proud of being Chinese. This is a guy I didn't go much into his background, but he wasn't recruited early on. He he grew up in Taiwan. His parents and his wife's parents were politicians and military generals, nationalists who opposed the Chinese the communists and had to flee to Taiwan. He was college educated there. He came over here and got his graduate degrees. So he should have been very cognizant of what the communist Chinese really are about. But to him, he was so proud of being Chinese. That's how Chi Mac, great Gu Weihao recruited him. You know, we know, you know, we're not going to, the, the classic uh, approach, you know, we're not a threat to the United States. We, we just want, we want to be proud of China. We want China to, to succeed. And you're Chinese, and this is what they often use when they try to recruit Chinese American engineers. You're proud of China. You want, you want to help us, don't you? We're not going to threaten the United States. And so he he not only bought into that racial pride, but he ended up buying into the whole thing. He was he had all sorts of propaganda as far as the, the socialist wonders of mainland China. Wow. So how long did he end up being or what was his sentence anyway, his jail sentence? Yeah, he got, we were we had to show because it's economic espionage. We had to show uh, his sentence depended on how much he stole. And so we worked closely with Boeing and we were able to doc, Boeing was able to document for us that they believe they lost about $2 billion in business because of what he had provided, especially on the Delta IV rocket. And so with that sentencing guideline, we were able to get 15 years sentence, not nearly enough, but that's what we were able to get. And, and actually that's still the longest standing sentence anyone's got for economic espionage. And there's been all, this opened the door to a hmm. lot of cases that both Los Angeles and a San Jose RA out of San Francisco have done a lot of economic espionage cases. And there's been a few back east too. But this was the first, whereas Mac kind of broke the envelope as far as now we can convict people for espionage for China. Kevin's case broke the envelope that, hey, we can go after him from economic espionage. It's not that hard to, to do. And now it's now it's being done. It could be done more, but... Those two cases were very important to getting getting us on track to to trying these people. That's that's fantastic. I'm really glad that you were able to spearhead that in such a way because there are a lot more people doing that and that have done that in the past few years besides just Chimac and Greg Chung. You know, I've certainly been seeing more reports yeah. of arrests occurring, both Chinese Americans and native born Americans like that. I forget his name now, the Harvard professor who was just arrested yes. recently. Yes. Uh huh. So there's there's a real flow of information and technology from west to east for sure, and it's good to get a win every now and again when we can to put a, a stop to yeah. that. And yeah, and almost always their defense with Greg Chung and Chi Mac and others, they've always said, "Oh, well, it was a technical exchange." Greg Staples, the AOC, had a great moment in the courtroom where he was he was asking Chi Mac, "Exchange means some we get something. What do we get?" And he. he Chimac had no explanation. It's not two way. It's always one way, and they'll and they'll and the 
university people or whoever will say, oh, it was an exchange. We're not getting anything, anything cutting edge from them. It's all going one way, just as you said. But, you know, some some of these cases are still getting uh, pulled later. I want to emphasize to people, when I see a case being pulled, it's not because I don't think the person did it. Because China is hammering on everybody, their students, anybody over here who's even Chinese are trying to get to to help them. I don't, when I hear about pullback, I know what's happening. It's they've had, a, they've had difficulty with evidence. There's maybe part of their case is, is, is based upon some classified evidence. So they can't divulge. Otherwise, they'll give up their source who might be in danger or they won't be able to learn anything more once that source is revealed. So, so many times in terrorism and CI cases, the case isn't bad. It's just that it, it can't be, we can't, do everything the U.S. court system wants us to do to bring it. So therefore, we have to we have to pull it. Right. It, it seems like there's never been like an, an easy marriage between the intelligence community and the justice system, really, because they're working with completely different methods and for completely different goals in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And any jury has to see all the evidence and and you know, they don't have clearances and, and defense is going to have to see what the jury has shown. And we certainly don't want the defense to know something. So there's, there, I was told at different times in the case, look, if we can't find a way to prove this through an unclassified means, then we're pulling the case and the case will collapse. It wouldn't be because he wasn't guilty. It was because we couldn't prove it in, an, in a very open fashion manner. I'm, I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying people need to understand that doesn't mean the case is bad at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, it's very difficult. There, we just do not get many convictions these days for espionage, right? A lot of it is like you said, the failure yes. to register as a foreign agent, right. which is a, a lesser charge. Yes. The woman who, the Russian woman who got close to all the NRA guys, I think she was an unregistered foreign agent, wasn't she? Right. A couple of years yeah. ago. So mm-hmm. that, that seems like, I don't know if I say that's more accessible for a conviction, I guess, maybe not easier, but yeah. Well, and because the CHIMAC was the first case to break open, we had classified it, but they said, well, it's not stamped classified. We said, well, wait a second. CHIMAC had actually, he had a clearance. He read this stuff and then he rewrote it word for word into a report. But he obviously is not going to stamp his own report secret if he's going to provide it to China. They said they wanted it easy. They wanted it served up to them. Again, not Greg Staples, but the rest, he's a higher up. They wanted it served up. So that's just ridiculous. If I'm spying for China, I'm not going to stamp my own reports that I'm sending surreptitiously secret. Is if they're they're found, it's going to be a red flag that I'm doing something wrong. Right, right, absolutely. So, th- and a lot of this t- stuff is so technical, people don't know what's classified and what isn't. Sure, sure. It, yeah, it's important to highlight the difficulties of this because people don't see a lot of espionage convictions. So, if they don't see it, they don't think that necessarily it's going on. So, my question to you, and this is kind of my final question, really, is: What do you think needs to change for us to successfully counter espionage here in the United States? without becoming like a, a security state, so to speak? Like what changes would you recommend right now if you can make them? Right, right. Well, we used to have a program that I've learned since the bureaus kind of stepped back on that I th- thought was very valuable. Now, it was reaching out to private industry, defense contractors, especially, but others, and telling them, and I was, I've given a presentation about this case literally hundreds of times, both the U.S. government people and the private sector, saying these are what you need to look for. And one of them was this excessive pride, racial pride in the accomplishments of the homeland. Now, you know, if if the homeland is Great Britain, that's one thing. You're not going to be very worried about that or Ireland. But if it's China or Iran, 
or North Korea, you have to you have to stop and think about it. It's not being racist. It's not being prejudiced. It's it's being reasonable. So uh, the Boeing with with Greg Chung, he actually was arguing with with Taiwanese uh, engineers at Boeing about how what a great and egalitarian country communist China was. And that's political opinion, and he's and he's free to express that. But they also saw that he was trying to hide his travel to China. He was trying to report that he was like sick at home when he actually went overseas and somebody discovered it. Now, in a good, in an ideal situation, they would, they should report that. Hey, did you know Greg Chung to HR or somebody else, security? Did you know that he went to China when he said he was sick? Uh, so I'll give you an example. There was a medical case we had, no military applications down in uh, Irvine. Uh, we cover Irvine and they have a lot of uh, medical companies there. And this company approached us and we, we'd given them a presentation like this. They approached us and said, we got this guy that keeps doing a ton of downloading and then he goes to China to visit his mother. And then he goes to China to do for some other reason. And he keeps doing all this. We see all this downloading of uh, activity. Oh my gosh. They told us on a Wednesday, we responded, we looked, we went and met with them. We looked at what he was downloading. So he was going to leave Friday night. And we were able to put together enough of a case that we arrested him as he was getting on the plane. He had hard drives, thumb drives. We, we searched his house too. And we convicted the guy for, he was committing economic espionage. This was, although I think we termed it theft of uh, proprietary trade secrets, a uh, slightly different statute. And we convicted him because he, what he was doing, he was stealing from his medical company, a catheter information. And he was going to, and China was offering him incentives to go there in a certain industrial park, give him tax incentives, uh, set him up, and he starts his own company. He doesn't, we won't have the R&D costs or anything else, and he's going to be able to undercut the Irvine company and all these catheters and other medical devices. So it doesn't have to be uh, you know, military secrets, but we, we are getting stole, stolen blind here, and it's happening everywhere. Any huge company, it's happening. Somebody's doing it. It doesn't, doesn't have to be China. It could be Iran. It could be someone stealing from their company here to start their own business, you know, in another state in the United States. But economic espionage and theft of our secrets are happening, I think, in any large company. At least one person's doing it. We saw so many cases like that. I, I agree. It's a real deluge. And it's unfortunate that so many people are not aware of this for sure. And it's, it's, I'm afraid it's going to continue going on for a while, even if people are waking up a little more now than they were a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, but the alertness of the co coworkers is a key in management and, and willingness to call us. But, you know, for a lot of reasons, the private company is worried about uh, publicity. And so, uh, thankfully, Boeing and L3 Communications oh, yeah. were outliers there, and they were willing to work with us, and we had great success because of that. But we've also had cases where the company will fight us and make it nearly impossible for us to prove a case. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're worried about word about of their technology getting out as well, and their yeah, or or their or their stock price or whatever. They just don't oh, yeah. want the negative publicity. Man, that's short sighted, but it's it's normal, I guess. Wow, well, thank you. That was really fascinating. I really appreciate it. So, can you tell me what it is that you're working on now that you've left the FBI? You've retired? Yeah, well, I I would have stayed there, but they have a fifth, uh, mandatory retirement, fifty seven. And, and I actually reached a 57 and got an ex extension because I, I just loved the work. I was working the China squad and loved the work and was in the middle of that medical case I mentioned. But, uh, so they gave me one extension, but it was a real bureaucracy and they didn't let me know I had the extension till a week before I was supposed to leave. And I didn't want to go through that again because it is a, 
FBI uh, bureau. It, it is a bureaucracy back there. And so, so I'd worked with L3 on the Chimac case and there was an individual there with security who'd been fantastic. And he let me know about an opening there at L3. So I put in for it. So I ended up being a director for uh, corporate ethics investigations. And I, nothing, no, didn't need any class, security clearance, anything like that. I did that for about three, almost three years and enjoyed it. But the company was bought out. L3 was bought out by Harris. So it became, became L3 Harris Technologies. And they closed their New York, they closed L3's New York office and moved everything to Florida. So my position was moved to Florida too. L3, the original company had set up a very nice uh, severance package for anybody who didn't want to go in with them, go through with a merger. So I took that and I'm, and I'm happy about it. No complaints. It was very generous of L3. I worked that. And last year, I've just been in, kind of enjoying the time off, work, working a little bit part-time for a, a law firm in St. Louis when they need interviews or paperwork or opinions on stuff. And uh, I'm writing a book about the case. I think I was there from beginning to end. And one of the problems with, for instance, the Wenho Lee case is they had like eight or nine different case agents through time and all these different fingers, all these different chefs. I was there from beginning to end and saw everything. And there's a lot that needs to be changed. But there was a lot of interesting stuff, stuff that I haven't even touched on here yet uh, that happened in the case that I think people enjoy. So I'm working on that book, enjoying the rest of the time off here in Southern California. And my grandchildren. I just had a granddaughter born two days ago, and my grandson is four years old and just love spending time with him wow. and them. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. But So I'm enjoying it, but I don't know what's the future. If I'll do any more work, it'll probably be uh, part-time, probably not full-time anymore. Sure. So uh, do you have a title for your book already? No, no. I, I mean, I've got working titles, but I, I doubt that that's the one I'll go with. I'm, pro- I'm probably about halfway okay. through with Okay, that, sure. But, uh, I th- okay, good. Well, I look forward to reading it for sure. Hearing it straight from the source like you, that, that'll really give a lot of insight to these cases for sure. Yeah, no. So yeah, please let me know when it's available and I'll let people know okay. as well. All right. I will. I will. I am thinking of all in the family or something like that because uh, I didn't emphasize it enough, but it was five family members that were were doing it. And then with Greg Chung, oh, yeah. it was him and his wife. So it's uh, that's the one you can trust the most, the family member, when you're spying. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I like that title. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jim. I really appreciate it. This has been very insightful. I definitely do not think that enough is said about Chinese economic espionage. One of the things that I tend to focus on with my own work is, you know, a lot of Cold War stuff, for example, because there's a lot of old school tradecraft. Sure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this kind of thing is more subtle, I would say, and it's less flashy, but it's also as dangerous or, if, if not more dangerous, than anything else going on because we don't want to be facing, you know, the DDX or the the Chinese version of the B1 bomber one day in a future conflict for sure. Yeah, or the, or the or the or which I, I think I forgot to mention or the Virginia class sub which was the main target of, oh, wow. of yeah. Chimac, the, the Quilocker Drive. And that's that's they want to know what our acoustic signatures are. Right, yeah, yeah, that would be an absolute disaster for us and really a disaster for for the world because they have their sights on other places like Japan, the Philippines, yes. Taiwan, everywhere. True. Honestly. That's so, right. thank you for really shedding light on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. All right, as did I. Thank you. Okay. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at @spycraft101 or connect with me on Patreon. 
my patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Ethan B. and Steve R. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.